0: Hello, I'm Kendra Winchester, here with Samaya Nassim, and this is Reading Women, a podcast inviting you to reclaim half the bookshelf by discussing books written by or about women. And this is episode 64, where we're talking about The Morse Account by Leila Lami and A Very Large Expansive Sea by Tahra Mafi. So I'm really excited to talk about these two books today with you, but we wanted to give a little bit of an introduction to topics in Muslim fiction.
1: Yes, so in our previous episode, um, I talked about the theme of Ramadan reading. Uh, Ramadan is all about reflecting, looking within looking within ourselves in an effort to grow spiritually. Uh, Muslims also study the verses of the Qur'an uh, as an important activity in Ramadan. For the theme of Ramadan reading, we are channeling the spirit of Ramadan towards narratives by Muslim women.
0: Yes. And we are hoping that for those of you who observe Ramadan, that we can help you build your reading TBRs with books by uh, amazing Muslim uh, women and their stories and different narratives. So it's been a great project
1: definitely each of these books is offering a very distinct uh, version of the Muslim experience in the world.
0: So one of the things we wanted to talk about uh, that you pointed out, Samaya, was the lack of Muslim representation in Western literature. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, definitely.
1: So I feel like we, we definitely need more representation in Western literature. Well, I've been a reader all my life and uh, it wasn't until later in my life that I started reading books by by Muslims. And that lack of Muslim voices in the books that I was reading growing up really affected the way that I saw myself in the world. And it really complicated my experience with my identity or just feeling it really interacted with the way that I saw uh, myself represented in books. And, you know, it affected the way I thought about whether my my story was worth telling or not um or whether you know Muslim stories were worth telling or not. That we that, that those are some of the questions I started asking myself when I realized at the age of I think 17, um, that I hadn't read books by Muslim women or by Muslim men.
0: And you know, we were talking about before we started recording about the first books that we had read by a Muslim author. And it was the same author, I believe.
1: Yeah, so the first book that I read and that you read by a Muslim author was A Thousand Spended Sons by Khalid Hussaini.
0: I feel like this is a good example of why we need a more well-rounded and multicultural representation of the Muslim identity because when Americans think of Muslim literature, this is one of the main books that they think of, but it really is only one type of story within the whole grand scheme of experiences uh, that Muslim people have.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely a well-written book. And, you know, it, there's a reason why it resonates with so many people. And, it, and it's one of those books you find everywhere. But, you know, that also contributes to there being a single representation of Muslims. And uh, that's definitely why we need more books by Muslim women. And, you know, as a starting point, it wasn't a really, it was a powerful book. But, it was also traumatic to read, you know, as a Muslim person, as a female. So we definitely need more books that talk about other other kinds of Muslim experiences in the world.
0: Yeah, and I think that, you know, one of the other things that you're so passionate about explaining is countering the image of the submissive Muslim female, which I feel like is emphasized in A Thousand Splendid Sons, but really... We, that's not entirely the case. That's just one particular story, and it doesn't represent the entirety of all Muslim women all across the world, which I mean, when do you say out loud sounds ridiculous, right? Like exactly. like one book would do,
1: that. <laughs> yeah. like, you know it's it's such an obvious thing that there would be more many different kinds of women within a community but in the end what's happened is that there is this singular image of the submissive of the submissive muslim female you know who's oppressed and who's forced to wear the hijab or who is forced to live life in a certain way who who doesn't have agency and that's simply not true like You know, in the last episode we talked about it's not about the burqa in which you have this amazing selection of voices, you know, of Muslim women's voices that is really showing readers, that is showing people how there's not one single way of being a Muslim woman. There are so many different versions of Muslim women that exist and how it's impossible to create a definition that fits
0: everyone. Yeah, and and that's incredibly true. And I think that oftentimes when we're from, a different community than the community that we're trying to understand, we often view as the other community as a monolith. That there's only one single way to be that type of person, whether it be a country or a race or nationality or religion, in this case. And you know, I remember one of the first conversations that we ever had was that you know Islam is practiced all around the world. So you have the intersections of, you know, faith and your nationality and how that makes, you know, things look differently all around the world and how it's important to represent that.
1: Yeah. So you have, you know, intersections of faith, nationality, like you said, and also culture, which is, you know, something that really influences the way people even approach their Muslim identity, because a lot of times culture influences the way you even dress up there is definitely this multiculturality in the muslim community you know whether you're in the west uh, and i think this is especially evident when you go to certain countries where pe- more people migrate but even you know as someone who comes from, comes from saudi arabia there was there was definitely a lot of diversity in our community there so you didn't have a single way of being muslim you had so many different ways
0: I think that's so important, especially when you represent a religion, that you illustrate the different ways that people express that religion and include that as part of their identity. Because I am finding more and more that when you talk to people who don't practice the religion that you practice, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what that looks like. And unfortunately, most people remember the sensationalized versions of your faith. And it's like, no, no. No, that's not that's not how it works. <laughs>
1: yeah no definitely I agree with I agree with you profoundly like one of the things that really stands out to me is how you know when you have such a multicultural such a diverse community um, what really does connect us all then you know in the end like what is it that makes you Muslim and to me uh, it's the spiritual it's the spiritual relationship that we have with God and you know whether you wear a headscarf or you don't whether you have a long beard or you don't Muslims, all experience faith you know if if you identify as muslim then you have some experience with you with with faith with spirituality so that is definitely something that makes the discussion more nuanced and that is something that we need to see more in fiction and in non-fiction in books in general.
0: I think that really circles back around to our theme of Ramadan reading of, you know, Muslim characters looking at their faith and, and looking inward and analyzing their relationship with God in a lot of different ways. And I think that there are two book selections today really do that. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, that brings us to our first discussion book, Samaya. Um, I believe that's yours uh, yes yeah, so the first book we're discussing is the moore's account by
1: leila lalemi and this is a book about mustafa al-zumouri who is the first black explorer of america
0: so when we were talking about what books we wanted to discuss for this episode of the podcast you almost immediately were like the moore's account we're going to be talking about this one i was like okay so what originally drew you to this book
1: Uh, So this was definitely one of the first books that I read by a Muslim woman and in fact before I read the Moore's account I read Secret Sun which is the novel she wrote before this. You know, like in my mind, it's 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 one of the books I immediately recommend to people when they ask me for Middle Eastern or Muslim fiction recommendations. So it's definitely one of the best books that I've ever read. And because it was one of the first ones that I read by a Muslim author, it really stood out to me because of how exquisite it is. And also because of how, you know, she has created this incredible story that um, is tied to actual history and you know it's a when you look at the scope of the narratives that she has created it is incredible like that's the that's the word I keep repeating because it's it is it's so amazing
0: you know it really really is it definitely deserved to be nominated for the Pulitzer Prize like it was and I found that this book had so much depth and richness to it that you pretty much we could make five at least five episodes about this book so um if we're gonna fight we found it a little difficult to like narrow it down Um, there's so much to unpack in this (laughs) so much definitely so uh, let's just jump right in so what was one of the first things that you wanted to discuss about this book
1: There has to be a discussion on the Moore's account. It makes sense to talk about storytelling and the power of stories, you know, because what Lalami shows us with with the Moore's account is that storytelling is an exercise of power. And like we discussed in the previous episode, you know, the Narvaez expedition, which this book explores actually happened. And there were four survivors, and one of them was a black slave uh, who was Moroccan. And this book tells his perspective. And the reason Lalami did that is because when the survivors were reconnected to uh, Spanish civilization, only the Spanish uh, survivors were asked to tell their story. So... You know, storytelling is definitely an exercise of power, and by deciding who gets to tell the story, you also decide what the story becomes or what it represents. So, by limiting the power of storytelling to Spanish survivors, colonial powers contain the narrative and create the falsified myth or, or like the falsified truth that these expeditions were were a purely white male endeavor. And you know, when you see that. Mustafa al-Zumuri, Zamuri is known as Estebaniko because of his slave status. You know, he is at the center of the narrative. He's not in the periphery. like He is a crucial part of the expedition,
0: especially as, you know, you have fewer people who survive. And I, I definitely found that. And I feel like there was a lot of foreshadowing because Mustafa is a slave and his master, the man that owns the title to him, uh also survives there was that tension of you know equality in in the wilderness but then when he got back to civilization quote unquote he was not allowed to tell his own story and it was like everything reverted back to the way it was and i found that very interesting in regards to who gets to tell their story and there's a line in the book that says um, the spanish men's story was the one that went down in history as truth and there was no way that he could ever contradict that because it's already like been written down and he was not given the opportunity to tell his own story. And that line in particular, and, and that really brought the book together for me because it was like, oh, this is why she's writing this book.
1: There is a moment in uh, towards the end of the book where he says, uh, for every lie I had heard about the imperial expedition that had brought me to the edge of the world, I would tell the truth. And... This is the response that Lalami is also giving to to the Spanish survivors, you know, or to to the people who decide what gets to be told in history. Like this is her her response is, you know, and she uses facts from the from the original accounts. So it's not like she's making up stuff, uh, even though it is fiction. Her imagination, the extent of her imagination within this narrative is the character of Mustafa and how she, cre- you know, like how. The, the, the struggle that he goes through and,
0: you know, how he becomes a part of the expedition and his past. I think there's definitely something interesting about his story because we start with him uh, in, you know, his home city and he ends up selling himself into slavery and that's really where his story starts.
1: Yeah, so it's really, uh, the you know, when you look at this book, it is the journey of this one man and how he is an interloper, almost like he is neither the colonizer nor the colonized. And as a slave on this expedition, he is sort of... Uh, in the middle. And that is the position he, you know, occupies as the narrative goes on as well. You know, when he picks up the native languages and he is mediating between the tribes and the Spanish uh, survivors. So I, I feel like his journey is very Very interesting because you know he comes from the kind of city where uh, the Portuguese have vassalage, so he has seen and experienced firsthand how colonization can really uh, destroy uh, a a civilization. Like in in the act of colonizing, you literally destroy the life that was already there. And I feel like this is very powerfully represented in the in the way that the expedition moves on, and in the way that they try to occupy and you know eventually do successfully, you know, destroy the indigenous communities.
0: You know, there's a moment in the book where they're on the expedition, they're on these boats trying to survive, and they come across this island. And no one seems to be on the island, but they can tell their civilization and all of these men, like, flood through this island and eat and drink all of the resources that these indigenous people have created for themselves. So dried fish and water, etc. And it's almost like a physical representation of what colonization is like, you know, coming through, using up all the resources, and then just leaving everything trashed, and just expecting the indigenous people just to deal with that, like you deserve the resources that these people have worked to create. And that was one of the most powerful scenes for me, because it does have repercussions what they did, and it comes, you know, back around later, and they do suffer that. But it, I thought that it was such a vivid scene, and I was just from that point, it was just like very vividly ingrained in my mind. And I feel like it really stepped the novel up a level for me, like what she was doing and the depth that she was creating. It was one of the most
1: powerful things to read that scene,
0: um, especially because, like you said, you know,
1: it it shows the sense of entitlement. Uh, that these people had, you know. Um, And one of the other things that this is reflected in is the naming of places. You know, they engage, they actively engage in the process of giving names to places, uh, you know, to places, to rivers, trees, even fruits, you know, things that have already been named by the people who actually live there and who actually belong to that land, you know, who were there already. Uh, So these foreigners, they come in and they feel that they have the right They have that sense of they have the sense of entitlement that comes from their belief that they're superior and unquestionably that they're they're the rightful owners of the land because they have come to colonize it and the people. There is a lot of power also in the name of acting in the act of naming something. And it might seem simple to some people, but it's really not at the beginning of the story one of the things uh, that i wanted to mention about the act of naming things is how they even name mustafa like when he is baptized and he is given a new name because of his slave status like when he is you know when he becomes a slave you know mustafa talks about his own name and how it was compromised when he fell into slavery and he says that a name is precious. It carries inside it a language, a history, a set of traditions, a particular way of looking at the world. Um, so I think it's amazing that Lalami actually inserts this very early in the book, because identity politics is a theme that comes up quite regularly throughout the rest of the story.
0: I found, you know, Mustafa landing in the new place where he is eventually sold as a slave. He is you know, taken through and, and gone through a forced conversion. And I found that extremely difficult to read because I find especially forced conversions there's just something about that that is especially abhorrent, especially in the context of his life. It is so dehumanizing, you know, like when
1: you take away a person's faith or belief system, when you force them to stop practicing
0: it, that is dehumanizing. It's like the right of every person to practice. Just the process that he goes through And even though he's chosen to sell himself into slavery to try to save his family, it's just the fact that he goes through that and then ends up on this expedition. And from that moment that he is in slavery, he's trying to figure out how to become a free human being again. Yeah, and how he can sort of find his way back. That is one of the biggest catalysts in the novel of moving it forward and him trying to find a way back to his family and his culture and and in many ways his faith, I think
1: yeah and when you look at the structure of the book one thing I found really remarkable is how you know almost I think halfway through the book he doesn't have any more stories to tell about his past you know he's sort of used up all the content you know that he had about his life and that that to me was so sad to see a stop you know in in the stories that he was telling about his past Uh, because there's only so much that he can remember or even you know hold on to and I guess the more time moves on uh, the more painful it is because he is in in during that that expedition goes on for almost eight years so the more that time passes by and the more that time passes he realizes that it's getting more difficult for him to return home so I felt that in the way in the structure of the book or the format you know there is an end to the stories of the past because you know maybe he doesn't want to uh really you know go to think about his past, which will bring
0: him a lot of pain. But I found that, you know, when he met other people along the way, not to give any spoilers, so I'm going to dance around this a little bit, but um, when he meets other people on his journey, he retells those stories to them. And in many ways, that keeps his past alive and his love for his family alive to be able to tell others about them because his master doesn't care about where he came from. He cares nothing actually about him than other what he can do for him. So he doesn't want to hear his stories, but these other people in his life give him the opportunity to share. So one thing I really appreciated about
1: this book was uh, the face dimension in Mustafa's personal narrative and how to Mustafa, his Muslim identity is possibly the only constant that he has in all of this, you know, in all of this madness and all the transitions that he's going through, the the journey that he's on. So when he becomes a slave, we talked about this, like when he becomes a slave, he is forced to lose his name and forced to give up his faith. So he can't visually appear to practice it. But inside, in his heart and mind, his identity um, continues to exist and his faith continues to serve as a support and as a guide through some of the most difficult times. Um, and I loved that his faith in God does not waver during the more trying times in his life. So we really see a Muslim character, you know, who whose faith is a constant and whose Muslim identity is a constant. It's, it's a form of support.
0: And I found that like through his trials and and tribulations, his faith in God expands and he grows in his faith. And something that it seems like as he's narrating the story, he's almost a little bit surprised that it happened. But because of the people he's come in contact with, both uh, the Spanish uh, explorers and the indigenous people in the area, he learns more about humanity and therefore he learns more about his faith and about God during that experience. Uh, Yeah, I completely agree. And I think uh, what this
1: reminds me is that one of the things that he seems, uh, you know, really interested in is the customs or or the culture of the indigenous people. And I think, you know, having Mustafa as a narrator, you know, when we want to talk about the scope of this narrative, we have to think about the person who's narrating it. And that person is Mustafa, who's a black Moroccan slave, who is also a Muslim. Um, He is the unlikeliest of persons you'd think would narrate a story about the expedition to South America, you know, back in the 16th century, before... America was even formed. And I think this element really speaks to the diversity that is represented within this book, which wouldn't
0: have been accounted for in the original narratives. Yeah, I think that goes back to what you were saying about the author, like giving Mustafa an opportunity to share his story in this historical fiction type of account, and what it could have looked like. Well, it does make you wonder what we miss by not giving you know, the actual historical character that he was, he's based on a a chance to share his story and what we might've learned from it.
1: Yeah. So one of the remarkable things that uh, Lalimi does, which doesn't, does not exist in the original accounts about the expeditions is the, uh, the women who are present in the story, like who were present at the time and other minorities. So for example, with Mustafa, you have his mother, you have the, the, the female companions that he has uh, throughout the rest of the story. And aside from all of this, we do have, uh, you know, women who are mentioned as part of the group of settlers uh, that come to South America as part of the expedition. What I felt is that the Moore's account is a more complex and humane representation of the minorities that would have existed with that would have existed within or around the expedition, so to speak. Uh, So you have a more nuanced representation of Native Americans and their cultures. Uh, Women are also given space within the text. Um, And, you know, the Spanish explorers are mentioned and the wives of the Spanish explorers are mentioned as well.
0: Yeah, and I feel like oftentimes we have this romanticized idea of you know, the past and, and different things. But one of the things I found very interesting was that we find out more about the Native women, I guess, than the Native men, oftentimes, just because of how the plot plays out. But we see that patriarchal structures and sexism are almost like a universal theme throughout the book, that every society struggles with this power dynamic. And we definitely see this in some of the Native Native American women characters and how they recognize their own society's struggles and try to combat that? I, I want to avoid giving away any any
1: spoiler, but, you know, one of the female characters that is quite prominent in the later sections of the book, she also struggles against that. She struggles against the, the roles that her community is pushing her into, and she is uh, belonging to an Indigenous community. Yes, and there's just so much to discuss in this book. Like, I feel like I have, like, 10 other things that I could have talked about Uh, So that was the Moors account by Laila Lalami.
0: We'll be back with more of our discussion picks from this episode after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Reading Woman is sponsored by Nivellic. Nivellic is an app for book clubs and book discovery. It is a free download and it's free to join or create book clubs. You know, Novelic believes that book discussions really come from the heart. It's about talking and making new friends through the love of books. You know, many of us have friends who don't necessarily share the same taste as we do, but novellic provides a way to connect with people who also share our reading interests and to create clubs around that, whether online or in an actual food physical location. And the great thing about the Novellic app is that every book on the app is a book that someone else has loved and enjoyed reading. The book selections are curated not by machines or algorithms or anything like that. It's completely human driven and their goal is to create that serendipitous discovery of finding your next favorite author for the first time, but online. Right now, Novellock is available in the Apple App Store, but later this year, they are planning on adding a ton of brand new features and making it available for Android users as well. And they have asked us to let you know that they are actively looking for readers to connect with them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to let them know what you're looking for in a bookish app and to get your feedback to make the new version even better. So to learn more about Novellic and to find your perfect book club, go to novellic.com. That's N-O-V-E-L-L-I-C.com. And you can also f- find it in the iOS app store. And thank you so much to Novellic for sponsoring this episode of Reading Women.
1: All right, Kendra, so tell us about the book
0: that you've selected for our discussion. So our second discussion pick is A Very Large, Expansive Sea by Tahara Mafi. And this is out from Harper Teen. And this is a YA contemporary novel. Um, and it's actually slightly in the past. It's set right after 9-11. And it's about Shireen, who is a uh, Persian-American girl who is also Muslim. And she is in high school. And so she's experiencing a lot of Islamophobia and prejudiced against her and her faith because she is one of the only Muslim women in her school. And it's just about her life and her experiences. Uh, She's also a break dancer, so that's pretty cool. And also this love story with a guy named Ocean.
1: Yes, it's a really, really interesting book. Um, I definitely enjoyed reading it and appreciated it as a Muslim reader. So this is the book I wanted Mafi to write. When I was first introduced to her work, you know, that that was the time when Shatter Me series was pretty new. Uh, I was thrilled that a visibly Muslim writer was writing books for young adults, uh, but her fantasy books did not have that kind of Muslim representation that I was looking for. So
0: I'm really thrilled about this book. What is it that drew you to this book? One of the things I wanted to talk about in our discussion episode was uh, Americans who are also Muslim and what they face here in the Western society, because I think that there are, you know, such distinct different experiences when you're a Muslim in a Muslim majority country versus a Muslim in a Western society and having to interact in that culture and what you face with a lot of the prejudice against you both racism and islamophobia and just how the intersection of that is really difficult especially in this context of being a teenager a young woman just trying to be who you are
1: i think what the book uh, shows very powerfully through Shireen's experiences is how she is being treated so harshly, you know, for something she did not even do, just because of the way that she looks. And as someone who comes from, you know, a very sheltered sort of background, you know, like I, I grew up in Saudi Arabia where my Muslim identity was not only encouraged but it was also nurtured. I never experienced that kind of hate for simply being myself. And so definitely what this, what Mafi's uh, contemporary novel does is uh, show how, you know, a Muslim teenager in the West is experiencing Islamophobia. And it is really bringing that harsh reality to a genre that is usually more comforting to read. You know, contemporary YA fiction is usually more comforting. So I think Mafi's novel offers a look at one type of Muslim experience.
0: Yeah, and I think, you know, there is a there's a second Muslim character in the book of this uh you know, the protagonist is Persian, uh but there's a Indian American girl living there. And she's also Muslim, but she does not wear the hijab like Shireen does. And so there's this interaction between the two of them, and it's the idea of what the hijab signifies and there's this argument between the two of them. And later they do come to reconcile and uh under, you know, band together as it were under you know they're both muslim girls you know they they find that together but there is this argument and tension between them about the hijab and wearing the hijab and what that means to Shireen and what it means to the other girl as well and just that complex relationship within muslim community as well i think is such an important representation I think what that scene also does is it reveals
1: this conflict that also exists within the Muslim community, you know, on the matter of representation. In fact, like how do we represent ourselves? So there is this young girl who is Shireen's age, you know, and she uh, while she does not wear the headscarf, you know, she feels uh, strongly about her Muslim identity and this also shows that you don't have to be someone who's wearing the headscarf. You, you can be someone who identifies as a Muslim and that's very valid, you know. So this scene, while it was really funny to me, you know, as someone who's uh, living in a more sheltered sort of uh, reality of being Muslim, uh, it was a funny scene, but at the same time I think it addresses certain concerns that readers
0: might have. So you mentioned here in our notes about the differences between the hijab and the headscarf. So I thought maybe you could explain that to listeners, people like me who aren't practicing Muslims and, you know, what that means. Right.
1: So, um, you know, the the discourse that we see surrounding Muslim women's hijab uh, today, you know, it's very much focused on the headscarf, which is one element of the hijab because the hijab you know in the the word hijab itself means modesty so When we talk about hijab, it's not something that only a Muslim woman has to practice. It is something even men have. So there are rules for men as well. And the overall idea is that the hijab represents the modesty of a Muslim person, not a Muslim woman, not just a Muslim man, but a Muslim person in general. So the headscarf is one aspect of the hijab. It uh, fulfills the requirement that we cover our hair, but the concept of hijab actually goes beyond to that and it is in how a person behaves it is in the the humbleness or the modesty that a person has when they're interacting with other people generally it is a way of being rather than uh the definition that rather than what we see the hijab being represented as in the media which is the headscarf so the headscarf is just one element and the hijab is something that is more you know
0: uh So hijab is the concept of practicing modesty, not just in your dress, but in your life, in your actions as well. Exactly. And the headscarf is one manifestation of the hijab. And so one of the big conflicts between these two Muslim girls is that Shireen has a boyfriend and she is seen kissing him. On various places on the high <laughs> school campus. But she's also... Being a teenager. Yes, being a teenager. And so... Well, being a very American teenager <laughs> or like Western. Western <laughs> so the other girl is very angry at her. Like, you know, you were headscarf. You can't go around just kissing boys. And there's this really big altercation. And ultimately they do come, you know, to the space where they learn that They're practicing their faith differently, and that's fine, um, but there is that conflict there. And I found it interesting about the reaction to this book from the Muslim community that it was very mixed as well, in that sense. Yeah, so
1: um, I've noticed that as well that a lot of readers took an issue with the way that the hijab was being represented because, uh, you know, like if you are, if you as a Character are speaking so strongly about the hijab and what it means to you and why you wear it, then you kind of have to follow through with that. The thing is, you know, the Muslim community is so diverse and, you know, there are so many different kinds of experiences that we have as a Muslim. And one thing that I think is important to note is that Shireen is a Persian Muslim but she's also American what this really shows is that you know the conversation that we're having even within the Muslim community is so so nuanced in the way that we each you know see our hijab or like the the way we see it as uh, either just a just a covering like for our hair or as something that is deeper yeah so what this you know Shireen's story really shows you that uh, there is this this type of Muslim girl that exists. You know, she is an American. She, she grows up in a Western country and she has sort of, you know, dualities to her identity. And that is something that we cannot argue against because also Mafia is writing from her own experiences. So that is one of the reasons I think we need more stories about Muslims and especially about young Muslims because there are so many ways in which we experience being Muslim and Shireen is definitely one example of that. And there are many, many girls like Shireen, and there are many, many girls like that girl who, you know, that character who does not wear the headscarf but feels strongly about Muslim representation.
0: And I think that's so important because, you know, over the past year, there were some amazing works of literature here in America, specifically about uh, the Muslim identity in the American context. So you have A Place for Us by Fatimil al You have Huda al Marashi's memoir, which we talked about uh, a couple months ago, and how all of their experiences are very different, but they're all Muslim American girls living their their lives. And like that coming of age story, they're all looks different for them. And they approach these choices differently. And I found that viewing this book within that larger context was very helpful because you could see the different girls making the different choices and how that still within the Muslim community. And so it gave you a wider range of perspectives. It's almost like, um, the it's not about the burqa essay collection just yes in the american specific context
1: yeah definitely so um i really enjoyed a place for us as well because it shows it shows us another image of what it's like to be muslim in america and one thing that stands out to me is how certain experiences are more cultural than they are based in you know faith practices away in this book you know she talks about her hijab And the Islamophobia that she experiences Because of her visible Muslim identity Other aspects of her faith You know, which are very important to Muslim teenagers You know, like praying Or fasting or celebrating Eid Which is uh, You know, our version of the Christmas That comes at the end of Ramadan So that's very important to to us uh, But these things are mentioned very briefly um, In fact When Shireen mentions praying She talks about how she lied about praying. And I think this might be the reason that certain Muslim readers really loved the book and accepted the representation. But other readers are questioning why we don't see more of Shireen's faith and the struggle that she has with it. So she mentions that she mentions praying, but that she lied about praying, so it would be interesting to see why she struggles with this aspect of her faith. Um, And I think certain readers have a certain, you know, they have a higher standard of expectation from Mafi because the Muslim identity is so central to the book's marketing. But overall, I think this book does more good. Uh, than anything, because before this book, many Western teenagers had little idea about the Islamophobia that young Muslims are facing, and they had very little idea about what it is like to be a young Muslim
0: girl, to be a Muslim teenager. I think there's a lot to be said about this book in that Shireen is making her own choices like she is choosing to wear the hijab she's choosing her method of dating or not dating and that she's making these choices within her faith and that's just what she's coming to and I don't think that you know the author is saying that this is right or this is not right or this is the way it should she should be doing it this is just what she's doing and I I feel like that is just you know her choices oftentimes come to a hot mess she has problems she's not a perfect person and she's just a teenager (laughs) And she's just a teenager. In the end,
1: like, I think... Yeah, in the end, I think we need to remind ourselves that this is a character who's so young and, you know, the poor thing is going through so much because of her identity, like because of the regular injections of poison that she is experiencing, you know, because of the Islamophobia. So the only thing that she has is her choices. She moves around a lot, so she doesn't have any long-term friends. She, uh, She feels like she has to explain to people why, why racism is bad and she feels like she shouldn't have to do that so there's a lot of like bottled up anger within Shireen so in the end I guess her choices do become the only thing that she has and she's you know it is her right in the end
0: live her life and that is completely all right one of the things I found very brilliant about this book is some of these scenes where Shireen is interacting with Ocean who is her love interest in the book and they're talking about like she's a, sort of explaining like her cultural experience to Ocean, but it's not her responsibility to explain Muslim culture or Persian culture to Ocean. So he'll be like, I don't care if you wear the headscarf scarf or not. And she's like, yeah, it's not about you.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I really love that. I really love that. You know, that she asserts herself that, you know, this is my choice. This is about me. It's not about you. But also I feel Ocean is such an interesting element in this book because, you know, he is sort of connecting Western readers to Shireen's world.
0: So uh, yeah, so his character is very interesting and that there's so much going on and he often represents not just Americans, like white America, but like the privilege that athletic white boys have in high school because the relationship becomes very complicated then Shireen is asked to sacrifice her own wants and desires for the sake of Ocean who already has way more privilege than she does in society.
1: One thing that's really incredible is that with Ocean's character she is educating her audience but at the same time you know Ocean's experience when ocean becomes involved with shireen and he comes in closer contact with the reality of islamophobia this sort of reveals how how his privileged had not shown him before how pervasive
0: prejudice is in the society yeah i definitely think so and i think that was very well done so and i also think that you know
1: aside from this being a book that so definitely about the Muslim experience and about Islamophobia in that context there's also a love story that is very central to the narrative and I've thought about this and I think that that was a very intelligent choice uh, on Mafi's part because a love story is a very familiar story for readers. So it will draw them in and in the process also educate non-Muslim readers about what it's like to be Muslim or about what it's like to be in love with a teenager who may not be Muslim. So it it has that, you know, uh, interracial relationship represented. And in doing all of that, it also shows you how pervasive prejudice is in the society
0: yeah and I think also with the fact that you know Shireen is very into fashion she's very into breakdancing like all like all of the Muslim women writers that we've been talking about she's breaking stereotypes as well and illustrating just the wide range of experiences and I just found that just really cool there's this great book trailer which I will link down in the show notes of Mafi showing off some like cool breakdancing moves uh, because that was her experience she was a breakdancer which I just thought just cool she's just so, so cool so cool I wish I could so be half cool, a stylist as <laughs> cool as she is
1: I know right like her fashion sense is so brilliant like yeah she has a very definitive identity you know and she expresses that with the clothes that she wears
0: So that was A Very Large, Expansive Sea by Tahirah Mafi. And this is out from Harper Teen, so definitely go grab a copy. Uh, And that's our show. Thanks again to this episode's sponsor, Novellic. Uh, Definitely go check out all of their info down in our show notes. If you haven't yet, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice. And thanks to all of you who have already done that. Many thanks to our patrons whose support makes this podcast possible. To subscribe to our newsletter or to learn more about becoming one of our patrons, visit us at readingwomenpodcast.com. Join us next time where Sachi and Kendra
1: will be talking about books for Asian and Pacific Islander Month. In the meantime, you can find Reading Women on Instagram and Twitter at The Reading Women. You can find Kendra at Katie Winchester and me on Instagram at Sumaya.books. Thanks for listening to Reading Women. Storybound is a podcast where acclaimed writers read their essays and stories, which are then scored by unique and award-winning composers with each episode hosted by myself, Jude Brewer. With Storybound, you'll find a whole array of genres and musical styles, some painful yet sweet or hilarious yet tragic, all brought to you by the podglomerate and Lit Hub
0: Radio. Hi, I'm So up Hi, I'm Megan Angelo. This is Tommy Orange. This is Amanda Stern. This is Phil Cly.
1: Hello, this is Stephanie Danler. My name is Chloe Caldwell, and you're listening to Storybound. Storybound. This
0: is Storybound. Story Storybound.
1: Storybound. This is the Storybound podcast. Season two will be arriving on July 14th with new episodes every Tuesday featuring writers like Stephanie Danler, Garth Greenwell, Tommy Orange, Chloe Caldwell, and more. Make sure to subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And tell a friend, because the next best thing to hearing a great story is having someone to share it with.